So Chris, uh, Chris Sanders just presented the scripture reading of the day from Luke's gospel, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me read the preface to that again. Luke sets the whole parable up and says, And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. With that parable fresh in our minds, I want to ask you to stand as we now read the text for the sermon tonight from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Please stand with me. So this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the the third chapter of three in that Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, Do not judge, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when behold, the log is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then maybe you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not cast your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Father, we thank you that you um, have spoken, that you have given us your word, uh, and we confess our our need for your help to understand it. And I pray more than just a, a head understanding, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts with the message that you've given us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. For most of this year, I've really been enjoying studying for uh, my sermons in community. So what we've been doing is uh, I've been studying the text Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And by Wednesday evening, when Bible study meets at my house, we discuss the text. And it's really refreshing because I, I come and I study Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I have my own set of questions and concerns. And, and then all the wonderful people in our Bible study add their questions and perspectives. And I thought, you know, I never thought of this or I never thought of that. And so I feel like it, it helps me in preparing a sermon for a larger congregation because it's not just my stuff in there. It's been a great time. Well, uh, one of the things I've been doing in the Sermon on the Mount series is reminding, well, and you've probably heard me say this up here too, is that remember the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus is in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel. And Gospel means good news, right? So I said that means that as challenging as the Sermon on the Mount stuff is, it's still really good news. Well, Colin's had a great, great question this week. He says, okay, I, I've been getting that it's good news thus far, but how is this passage good news? I mean, after all, it says, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. How is that good news? That's a good question. That's a good question. And, and then what popped up in my head is kind of a silly, simple illustration. But I said, well, what if... What if you had saved a sum of money because your dream vacation was going to a Pacific island or something like that and snorkeling in the warm water? And so you save up money for a year and you go to some island, Palau or Fiji or something like that. You get there, you get settled in your hotel, and finally you get to the beach and you start swimming around in the water. And the lifeguard comes to you and says, uh, I want to tell you something. Actually, this time of year, this very beach right here is breeding ground for hammerhead sharks and people get eaten here all the time now is that good news 
See, on one way of looking at it, you could say, Oh man, I saved all this money to get here. I took all this time off work. What a bummer. This lifeguard's ruining my time. Or you could look at it as what you gain your whole life, right? And in that sense, it's really good news. The lifeguard's news isn't flowery good news, but it's reality. And sometimes what you don't know can hurt you. And see, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about reality. In Matthew chapter 4, which is the chapter right before the Sermon on the Mount, we learn that Jesus comes into town, comes into Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, it's at hand, it's breaking into our time. Repent! And believe in this good news or change your perspective and embrace this new reality. Or even though you can't see the sharks in the water, trust me, there's more to life than you can actually see. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' grand vision for what life can look like in this kingdom of God. Now, compared to the Roman world, where if you wanted to be a Roman citizen, you either had to be born into the right family, or maybe you could, uh, you could buy your way into citizenship. Compared to that, Jesus says that, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, if you want to get in this kingdom of, of God, of kingdom of heaven, you don't have to worry about what race you are or what gender you are or what your socioeconomic status or even how popular you are. It's all about your stance. He says, basically, anyone who believes that they need God more than anything else is welcome in the kingdom of heaven. That would be poor in spirit. Jesus wants us to have abundant life, lives of love. He's telling us that God is like a father who cares for us. He's telling us that because we're so loved by this father, we no longer have to be calculating and cold with one another, always sizing each other up. We're free when we understand the father's love to be generous and to sacrifice our pride for the sake of others. He's telling us that despite what things look like, despite what human society throughout the ages holds up as reality, the truth is that we can trust in the Father for our future security. And that is good news. Well, as we enter into chapter 7, we're entering into the final chapter of Jesus' sermon. Chapter 7, 13 begins the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. But the first 12 verses are uh, uh, what's called a, in rhetoric, in rhetoric, in first century rhetoric, it's a summation of Jesus' sermon. And I think what's going on in, in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12, is Jesus is summarizing the main points of his ideas in the rest of the sermon. And tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Do not judge. It's actually one of Jesus' more misunderstood statements. So let's be clear about what this does not mean first, okay? First, do not judge does not mean 
that we should not have literal courts and judges. There's actually some, some groups that say maybe we shouldn't have any laws or any, any courts. Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Throughout Scripture, God calls people out as judges. Moses used to hear people's cases, and then he delegated that responsibility to some wise older people to help him bear the load. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about respecting the, um, the job of government, even though government's not perfect, but there is a role for government and executive and judicial policy. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have judges. Second, Jesus is not saying don't think. Don't have your critical thinking mind on, right? That's one of the the things I think university can do for us that's really important is, is it teaches you how to think critically about things. How not to just accept whatever's on the news as gospel truth, right? We, we get to think about, well, where's that source and whose agenda is that? And so Jesus is not saying don't think. Again, the rest of scripture confirms that God calls us to be discerning. He calls us to make judgments between good and evil and right and wrong and, and love and injustice. In just a few verses, Jesus, in this very sermon, Jesus is going to say, Beware of false prophets, right? And you know how you'll know them? You'll judge them by the fruit of their life. So he's saying, you know, you need to be discerning. Third, not judging in in Jesus' sermon does not mean that we don't ever confront people who, who do wrong against us. In fact, in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus tells us, hey, if someone sins against you, go to that person. And let them know what wrong they've done. And if they don't agree that they've done anything, then go with some witnesses. But don't just let things fester like the elephant in the room. So we're to be truthful and appropriately confess and, or confront sin. Let me just put a caveat on, on that. As this plays out, I think we're going we're gonna to see the heart behind Jesus' teaching. So if someone sins against you, and you go to that person and tell them, This is not uh, an opportunity to be self-righteous and to rub it in their face. Anytime we confront sin or a sin that someone's committed, I think the stance that we need to have is to realize, you know what, I could have done the same thing. In the right circumstances, in the right situation, I'm just as fallible as, as you are. So coming to people with at least some humility in this. Fourth, this does not mean that anything goes in church. Right? One of the, the big words in uh, Western culture is tolerance. You know, we're supposed to be tolerant and tolerate this and tolerate that. Uh, and this attitude of tolerance kind of seeps into the church sometimes. And, and sometimes I think we're too afraid to offend people by confronting things that we just let them go. But Jesus calls us actually to be more than tolerant. I think tolerance is kind of a cop-out. Love is harder than tolerance. Love is costly, right? Um, In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and uh, he's addressing all these different issues. And one particular issue is this guy in in church is sleeping with his dad's wife. It's his stepmom, and they're still married. And so, you know, the Corinthian church was being tolerant, and they're just saying, we'll just turn the other 
turn the other way and let this kind of go on. And Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying, wait a minute, you guys need to confront this issue. You can't just let this go on in the church. And there's two reasons for that. One is to protect the integrity of the church. Like, like Paul says, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So if you just let this keep going on, it, it's going to poison your whole witness to the community. You can't just let this go on. But second, and I think most importantly, is Paul says to, to cast this guy out of fellowship, not forever, but so that he will repent. You see, the guy is, is sleeping with his dad's wife, and he's not even repentant about it. He doesn't think it's a big deal. And Paul says, you know, separate him from community for a while, so it'll give him at least a chance to repent and to come back so we can be reconciled. Discipline, from God's perspective, is never, never, never vindictive. It's, we, we never uh, discipline one another or confront one another so that we can feel good about ourselves or so that we can make somebody suffer. It's always, always, always restorative. And I guess that's one of the differences, like with our justice system, you think about uh, United States and you do something wrong, what happens? What do you say? I've got to go serve my time. I've got to go pay my due. Our, our justice system is largely punitive. But, you know, if I'm a bank robber and I go to prison for 10 years and I come out, I'm, I haven't changed. Like, so I served 10 years and actually got three square meals a day and interesting scenes in the shower or whatever. But, um, you know, it's probably not, it's not a good place to be. But it's more focused on punitive than it is restorative. All right? And, and I think that what, the idea here is that we should always be looking out for the good of the other. That's why Paul tells us to discipline Christians, but not non-Christians. We're not supposed to be judgmental about non-Christians. <laughs> Listen to this. This is just a great thing that, uh, that Paul writes here. 1 Corinthians 5. Do you not know that I am in the wrong spot? <clears throat> yeah. Uh. <laughs> I, wrote it, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. I mean, Paul's a realist. He's not saying you can't associate with anybody who does anything wrong. Who would you ever hang out with? You couldn't hang out with me. But he's saying, you know, you don't need to, like, separate yourself from the world. What do you expect from people who haven't decided to follow Christ or put their faith in Christ yet? But he's saying if you have a so-called brother or sister who's serving in the church and doing all these things and living in this relationship, sleeping with his dad's wife or something crazy like that. He said, that's, that's the time to go and say and, and confront. All right. So Jesus is not saying don't confront or don't have church discipline. So <laughs> begs the question, this is one I've been wrestling with, what is he saying? What does this mean? And, and more specifically, how is Jesus' statement on not being judgmental, how is that at all a summing up of his Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think there's at least two ways it sums it up. First, Jesus has been emphasizing the heart behind our behaviors. He says if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you, your righteousness actually has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees were known for how they kept the law. So, oh my gosh, what are you trying to say? We've got to be more righteous than those guys? 
Well, Jesus makes the point that many times, the, even though the scribes and Pharisees kept the law, they were kind of hypocritical on the inside. And that's, I'm making a gross generalization, but that's the, the main issue is this hypocrisy where they were keeping the law so that people would say, great job, you guys are super holy. What, in the meantime, they weren't necessarily doing it because they love God or for the right reasons. Their motives were impure. And they followed the rules. They did it for the applause of people. And one of the ways the Pharisees made everyone remember how holy they were is to be judgmental on everybody else. They loved to rub it in your nose if you weren't keeping up with them and their spiritual practices. Because that way it made them feel special. So, the second thing that this recapitulation of Jesus' sermon is because it gets to the heart of so much of his message. Recall the fifth beatitude, for example. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's just the positive side of saying, do not judge. Or, think of Jesus' message on anger. He warns us not to condemn one another, but to seek reconciliation. When we harbor angerness and bitterness towards one another, it leads to contempt. That's the phase where you stop getting mad at someone and you actually start seeing them as less than a person. You turn someone created in God's image into just an enemy. Again, think of Jesus' teaching on revenge. The law said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says, do not seek revenge. Revenge dehumanizes people. It makes them the object of your anger. And it never really solves anything. Maybe you've heard this recent story of Amena Bahrami. In 2004, Bahrami was a beautiful engineering student in Iran. And this man kept harassing her kept asking her to marry him, and she kept refusing his advances. And one day, he snuck up and waited for her and threw a bucket of acid on her face, blinding her. That was in 2004. She's had dozens and dozens of surgeries, and frankly, she's still greatly disfigured today. So this goes into the court system, and in Iran, it's still an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so they just had the court case this summer, and the verdict was passed. And the verdict was that this man should have his eyes surgically blinded. And so the woman describes this scene, Bahrani herself, she's in the, the court. And on the one hand, she's furious, right? Like this guy has taken her parents, her eyesight, she wants him to pay. And she even said, you know, I I want men to know that they can't do this, that they can't get away with this. So in in some way she wanted the man blinded so that um, it might protect other women in the future. And then the man's mother came in and wailed and cried and begged her for mercy. And Bahrami decided with mercy not to have the man blinded. She decided for a monetary Settlement instead in court, so the man had to admit that he was wrong. The verdict was already passed. It's not like she took money to, to hush up the whole scene. This guy is forever marked for what he did. And I think that that is what Jesus is getting at here. Um, blinding, if, he, if she would have had him blinded, that's final. You know, you don't get that back. 
Sometimes you can recover from a monetary sum. It was like $2 million or something. I'm sure the guy didn't have it. What Jesus is getting at in telling us not to judge, he's not telling us not to discern. He's telling us not to put final condemnation on other people. We are not to cast final condemnation on other people because that is God's prerogative alone. And I, for one, sure am glad I do not have the power to decide where people go in eternity. I'm just not smart enough, wise enough. I don't have the perspective that God does. And I think when you, it, when you think about this, you should be glad that no other person has that power over you either. We don't have good perspective. And Jesus gives us an illustration. We have this log in our eye. Now I forgot my two by four at home, so I have to use this pull cue. Why do you try and take the chalk dust out of your neighbor's eye when you have a pull cue sticking out of your own eye? So, I mean, seriously, like, check this out. How would this be? This is supposed to get a laugh out of Jesus' audience. In fact, the word in the Greek, therefore, the log sticking out of your eye is like a, a building timber. So it's like some huge support beam sticking out of a person's eye. And it's like, Eric, let me try and get that uh, chalk dust out of your eye. I'm sure I can get it. I've got the greatest perspective. It's like, you fool, you've got this thing sticking out of your face. You can't possibly have perspective enough to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. See, before being quick to judge other people, we should recognize that, oh, wait a minute, I'm one of those judged people. Like, I'm a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. Jesus came and died for you and your sin and me and my sin and everyone and their sins. And then look at where this teaching comes in relation to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, can we honestly read, um, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, do not be angry with your brother. Or you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, how can we read all of those things and then get to this and say, well, actually, I'd be a pretty good judge of you. Uh, yeah. That doesn't, work. that doesn't work. If anything, after reading uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it, it kind of makes us poor in spirit, doesn't it? It kind of makes us say, wow, I really need something outside of myself to experience this kind of life. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not there to make us feel bad. It's actually a vision of what life can be like. The point is that it should also make us know that we can't live that life without Him. And so, we're back at the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we're sinful humans, logs in our eye, full of mixed motives, then we really don't have perspective to be making final judgments about people. Not only is our perspective blurred by our fallenness, but our fallenness oftentimes causes us to exaggerate the faults in other people. Have you ever noticed that some of the qualities that most annoy you in other people are the ones you despise about yourself? You ever, you ever thought about that? The world lost a wonderful man weeks ago when we lost John Stott. 
Um, but I'm thankful that he was also a prolific author, and I can continue to learn under him. This is what John Stott writes about this passage. He says, What we are often doing is seeing our own faults in others and then judging them vicariously. What we're often doing is seeing our own faults in other people and then we judge them vicariously. That way, we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Isn't that great? That way, we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. We typically think better of ourselves than maybe we have license to do. Proverbs 21.2 Every man or woman is right in their own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Listen to what St. Paul says. I mean, this guy is like super apostle, one of the first church planters in the whole Christian movement, right? This is what he says in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and, and keep in mind, the people were kind of... Uh, on his case a little bit, kind of casting some judgment on what type of guy he was. This is what he says. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Check this out. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, but yet I'm not acquitted by that. You know, just because I don't think I'm a bad guy doesn't mean that that gets me off the hook with God, right? But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, don't go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring the light, uh, he'll bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of people's hearts, and then each person's praise will come to them from God. You know what I read about that? Don't put, don't put too much stock into your own press. So if it's accolades, pats on the back, or if it's, if it's really negative. Um, because really the final judge is going to be God. So the log in our eye is the fact that we're fallen and our perception is skewed, but the log also represents our our critical spirit. It's that driving self-righteousness that causes us to make sure others know that they've done wrong. And that way I can feel vindicated and justified. It's the opposite of the statement, true love casts out fear. It's the opposite of the statement that love covers a multitude of sin. True love actually means that we empathize with others. True love means that we know how much God paid to forgive us. You see, everyone, everyone has a story. Part of my story includes growing up with an alcoholic parent. And when I was in my teens and early 20s, I was addicted to performance. I was addicted to approval. So I would do certain things and work extra hard to seek approval of other people. And you know what that did to me? It made me competitive so that I stopped seeing people as people and started seeing them as something to overcome. It made me judgmental. Because I'm there early, and I work later than everyone else. If you don't do that, you must be a lesser person. And you see, at age 21, I wasn't going around thinking, I've got this baggage, I've got a story that I need to uncover. I didn't know any of these addictions to performance were going on. 
But you know what this addiction did? It caused all kinds of unhealthy habits, unhealthy work habits, unhealthy relationships, unhealthy lifestyle. And when God gave me grace enough to trust Jesus, I started looking for help, counseling, spiritual direction, mentors. I learned that my backstory was affecting my present story. I learned to accept God's approval as the most important thing in my life, which freed me from then viewing everyone else competitively. And see, the point of my story isn't about me. It's not my story. My point is that we all have a story. And all of us, that story affects how you interact with people. So one thing you can do in relation to this text is know your story. Get acquainted with your story. What drives you? What experiences, good or bad, shaped you to be the person that you are right now? And when you get more acquainted with your story and the complexity of what it is that we are as human beings, um, I think the natural outflow is a lot more grace for other people. Because everybody has a story. The person that cuts you off on the road. I mean, maybe their wife's in the car pregnant and they're going to the hospital. Maybe they're just a jerk. But there's a reason that they're just a jerk. All right? It doesn't excuse behavior, not yours, not other people's. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that everyone's got a story. Sometimes we made really bad choices and sometimes crap has happened to us that leads us in a direction that we often make more of those bad choices. Everyone has got a story. It should make us a good listener rather than a good condemner. Knowing the story behind people's behaviors, it it sheds light on why people do what they do. I remember uh, we were backpacking in Europe. It was 2004, so it was still pretty close to 9-11. And I went with all this angst. Actually, we were going to, one of the stops was in Paris. And I thought, oh, you know, because that was the, all the freedom fries junk that was going around and the French and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, people are going to hate us here. Like, we're American. And that so was not the case. When you start talking to real people on the ground who aren't in the media or trying to spin political agendas, and you start meet, we in Greece we met uh, all these young men from uh, Iraq. From two of them were from Baghdad. We had civil, great conversations. They would ask us questions about our life. I honestly, like, you don't even think people. <laughs> this is how naive, but like, you just think, oh, Iraq must just be a war zone, and everyone's just hiding in a bunker or something. I mean, these guys were college students. They had real lives. They had girlfriends. They had jobs. It was like real life going on. And when you start to find out people's stories and make them personal, well, it helps so much in understanding how we think and why we do what we do. I think this stance of listening, which, by the way, is one of our core values, right? Listening to God and listening to one another. I think that this stance of listening is part of what Jesus is about in chapter, in verse 6. 
Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine, or they'll trample them under your, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, dogs and swine, uh, just on a very basic level in first century culture, uh, had to do with unclean things or unclean people. In the Greco-Roman world, one of the lowliest positions was the male prostitute, and that, those weren't for women. And um, this, they were called dogs in that culture. Dogs and swine are also commonly uh, names for non-Jews in the first century. So some commentators see this verse as kind of a balancer to Jesus' don't judge but be a little bit discerning. Um, uh, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, don't be judgmental but don't be naive either. When Jesus sends his disciples with the, the message of the gospel, for example, he sends them into villages and towns. He says, you know, you go to a house and if they receive you and the message, well, bless that house. Stay there a while. But if you go to a house and they reject this good news, shake the dust off your feet. Take off. You know, that's basically saying, ah, you're, not, you're not ready to receive this. I'm, I'm out of here. So that's certainly part of it. But I think Dallas Willard's explanation in The Divine Conspiracy is maybe more what Jesus has in view here. Jesus would often use agricultural examples in his illustrations. Why? Because people were farmers and knew about animals. And if you know about animals, it, it, these aren't like the dogs that we have where they're like lap dogs and they have them for pets. These are like mangy pack dogs that run around and pigs are pigs, right? You, dirty pigs, right? So the point being that what's a dog going to do with Bibles and crosses and Baptisms and stuff like that. And what's, what's a pig going to do with pearls? Like, you can't digest those types of things. It's, they're, they're useless to, to an animal. Um, if you try and force these holy things on people who aren't ready to receive them, you're actually doing violence to them. You ever had somebody try and force like a sales product on you? They come to your door and they try and keep... T you're like, I don't want a vacuum cleaner. I've got a perfectly good one. No, no, seriously, you're not hearing me. No, I really don't need a vacuum cleaner. And they just keep talking and talking and talking. And finally, it's like, you are invading my life. Get out of here, you know. Um, well, that's the same thing that can happen actually with evangelism or with... You know, some people just aren't ready to receive that yet. You keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. You actually do them a form of violence. You know, when you think about it, why do we do that? It's often our judgmental attitude that causes us to have a savior complex. We need to make sure that people hear what we have to say. And we forget the very vital fact that it is the spirit of the living God who's in charge of evangelism. It is the spirit of the living God who converts. It is the spirit that softens hearts and opens minds. And you can guarantee that every person in the world, every person in your life is in relationship with the spirit of the living God. The spirit is going before us doing things in people's life. Some people are more resistant than others. And we ought to be then listening to the Spirit to prompt us as to when to speak and when to be silent, when to share Scripture and when to share a listening shoulder or just a simple drink of water or just to meet simple needs. And as we are real people who love other people because they're made in the image of God, not because they're our project, then maybe God will share what He's doing in their life. And maybe we'll get the opportunity to share something 
more significant. Or maybe it won't be you. Maybe it won't be you at all. Maybe you'll be, uh, you know, someone on that continuum from not even being interested in God to coming to faith in Christ. Uh, The Evangelical Covenant Church has a definition of evangelism. Partnering with the Holy Spirit to help a person take one step closer to faith in Jesus. You know what? Thank God that at some point the Spirit softened our hearts and minds enough to receive him. Thank God for this reality check. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't think it's because you're super smart or because you're extra good and everybody else isn't extra good. It's a work of the Spirit. And so, once again, we are delightfully reminded that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've inherited something we don't deserve. Jesus died for me and you while we were still sinners. And for that reason, let us be generous with our judgment and hopeful that all might come to know the love and forgiveness and life in the Father. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I, I just want to say thank you for, um, for this community. I, I want to say thank you for putting this church together in a way that I, I really feel at home. I, my kids feel at home here. It is, um, it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful feeling to have another home, another family. I also recognize that in that comfort of of family and a spiritual home, it's easy to forget where I come from and where we come from. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to remember uh, where we come from, um, the darkness that you are taking us out of. And let that reminder help us to be generous with other people graceful with other people. Hmm. Lord, we we lift up our community to you. Lettered Streets and Bellingham and Washington State, the United States and the world. We lift up our friends and family who uh, seem resistant to... um, to you, our neighbors, um, even those who we might consider our enemies, Lord. We pray, first of all, that you would give us hearts of love and compassion where that feels like an impossibility for us. And we pray, maybe with um, mixed motives or half-heartedness, but we still pray that all might come to faith in you, that all might come to know you, And then if you see fit, you might allow us to be part of that process. Amen.